Companies are struggling to get their arms around the issue of preventing human trafficking in global supply chains. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. For many global companies, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's disclosure rule on conflict mineral content in high-tech products was their first exposure to the issue of slavery or human trafficking in the supply chain. It's been hard enough for them to identify the presence of any minerals that come from specific banned mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now they're expected to broaden that oversight by identifying the presence of human trafficking throughout the supply chain. And ramping up to that level of vigilance won't be easy. Today I'm talking about the problem with Kristen Sullivan, sustainability services leader for the Americas with Deloitte. We'll find out why so many companies are still sitting on the sidelines and how they can get moving with effective programs to wipe out human trafficking. It's all about achieving multi-tier visibility and figuring out a standardized approach that can be adopted by all companies. So here is my conversation with Kristen Sullivan. Kristen Sullivan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. I want to get a sense from you as to what progress has been made to date on anti-human trafficking efforts within global companies. Can you kind of give me a high-level view of where you think we are in that? The topic of anti-human trafficking in, in global such supply chains has really elevated to the attention at the highest levels of organizations in the last several years. I think the, the reality that, that has become very clear the, the magnitude of this issue of, of the modern-day slavery problem and, and a number of the regulatory and policy developments that have really emerged to try to, to deal with this issue has really put this issue at the forefront of critical focus areas for companies. I do think, though, companies struggle with, with really just putting this whole concept, this whole issue into context in terms of, of really what they can practically do in terms of driving performance in this area. My understanding is that even with this heightened sense of uh, responsibility, that a majority of companies are still, quote-unquote, sitting on the sidelines with regard to taking any actual steps in that direction. And I'm wondering if you could explain why that might be the case. Companies are struggling a bit with really how to address this issue in the context of a commercial uh, business. This issue is so pervasive and, and so broad in, in how companies try to organize, as an example, across a diversified business of, of multiple different business units and lines. How do you really evaluate the, the key risk areas 
and really try to strike a balance in terms of driving an enterprise-wide program to minimize your risk of engaging in human trafficking activities through a very extensive supply chain, but yet focusing those efforts in those parts of the business that are most impacted. I think the other challenge that companies face is really the fact that there's no specific or widely accepted look-to framework to drive corporate anti-human trafficking activities. There are a number of guidelines and protocols that exist and have evolved to different stages of maturity over the past several years, but companies are, are really struggling to put into context, you know, what's that guiding framework that really can help me have confidence as an organization that I am following a systematic approach to really minimize my risk and be in a position where I can be very transparent about what I'm doing, the progress I'm making, but recognizing the challenges that I will continue to face as an organization given this risk is so unique. It is so broad and and, and one where a company truly can't eradicate the risk of anti-human trafficking from the supply chain just given the complexity of global supply chains. Well, I want to talk about some of those frameworks in a moment. But again, I just want to understand, I I guess some companies, even though they do fit the bill in terms of, as you say, a heightened awareness of the need for this, others might think that they are somehow immune from the possibility of human slavery in their supply chains. And I'm wondering what drives that particular brand of ignorance that makes them think so? It comes down to this increasing recognition. And I think where we saw the SEC's conflict minerals rule serve to really elevate the attention and the obligation of corporations, the accountability of a corporation to really take responsibility for the impacts of their business. As the phrase goes, you can outsource your business, but you can't outsource your risk and responsibility. And I think the lack of a defined sort of conformance around these issues or market understanding around these issues has served to, I guess at this point, the enforcement activity in terms of that mechanism to hold companies accountable has really not been as clear and present if you will, for companies to really drive and trigger that sense of urgency. I think, though, the emerging policy and regulatory developments will, will help that. But I do think it's, it's a matter of really just that greater awareness and appreciation by companies that there is responsibility of an organization of the business outside the four walls and really trying to think about the impact that the organization has across its value chain. It's continuing to grow in in the appreciation and significance to organizations, but it's just slower on the uptake given a lack of a clear enforcement mechanism at this point. Well, in the case of enforcement, in the case of the SEC rule on conflict minerals, there really is no enforcement there at all, is there? It's just a reporting rule. There are no penalties for failing to report other than perhaps damage to brand reputation and the like. The SEC itself doesn't have the power to to punish or enforce, does it? Well, the SEC does have the power to enforce if there is a clear indication of intentional misrepresentation through a filing. You're right, however, in the sense that the SEC's conflict minerals rule itself is very much a disclosure and transparency requirement. A company is expected to put in place a reasonably defined and executed program and report the progress. And clearly there are requirements and and a look-to framework. 
but companies who, who demonstrate a faithful execution and compliance approach to the rule will be in compliance by all definitions of the market at this point in time, where we will see the attention and kind of the heightened risk in, in this whole social compliance supply chain area is when you do expand the lens to broader anti-human trafficking requirements and really, you know, fundamentally look at, at some of these issues in terms of human trafficking that do really represent legal issues and, and really can put, put a company in a much different position than compared to a conflict minerals disclosure compliance requirement. Mm-hmm. So the SEC does not provide us with an, an acceptable risk management framework. Maybe it's a start, but it's not enough of a framework for a company to take that, the conflict minerals rule, and expand that into a, a broader anti-human trafficking initiative within a company. Is that correct? Well, the OECD due diligence framework that is looked to in the SEC's conflict minerals rule is a really effective and comprehensive framework. It's clearly focused on the considerations around sourcing conflict minerals and and some of the unique considerations and attributes to that sort of a practice and, and largely impacting a few key industries. I think our perspective in terms of how companies can leverage conflict minerals due diligence practices to expand to this broader anti-human trafficking set of considerations and issues is, is really very fundamentally to address that concern, that kind of overwhelming sense of, of this concept of anti-human trafficking, which is much broader than the, the conflict minerals requirements themselves. But really, most importantly, it's you don't have to start with a clean sheet of paper. There are a number of supply chain due diligence activities that companies have in place. In particular, the, the conflict minerals due diligence program that a company would have put in place, or, or if conflict minerals is not as much of a relevant issue for a company, there are leading practices that companies can look to to really look to that established systematic execution of a program following a framework and really drawing on the important relevant components of a framework and and really look to some of the leading practices and opportunities that have emerged as companies have now been through three years of, of conflict minerals compliance. So we do think there is an opportunity to leverage what, what has been done with conflict minerals, but to your point, really acknowledging where the conflict minerals compliance activities do leave off in terms of considering this broader universe of topics and considerations and stakeholders and and really the, the ultimate regulatory landscape that is emerging. Yeah, you're moving from a rule that relates to some very specifically named materials that go into the supply chain with some very specific supply chain partners such as smelters where you can achieve a certain amount of visibility and Essentially, just one country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, is really the target of that particular rule. And now, all of a sudden, we're talking about human trafficking the world over for all supply chains. So that is a huge step to take. Now, you say the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, gives us one particular framework. Where else can we go to get started or to ramp up from the relatively limited scope of the conflict minerals rule within companies? Well, I would say that companies, generally speaking, look to requirements to establish and inform and shape programs, management systems to meet those requirements. So I know we we see companies really looking to, whether it's the UK Modern Slavery Act, the 
California Transparency and Supply Chains Act, a number of others that, that continue to emerge to really understand the different elements of, of the requirements and, and think about how they need to be shaping their programs in order to comply. We have also seen the UN guiding principles that have come out and really focused more broadly on labor and, and human rights issues within supply chain and across enterprises that, that serves as a broad framework. And I think it really is incumbent on, on an organization to really understand the evolving regulatory requirements that are out there that will impact the business, as well as some of the leading practices and drawing on the experience, whether it's from conflict minerals or other supply chain social compliance activities to really shape and, and define the, the program that the company will set out to achieve. And I think what, what's really most important is focusing in on, again, those key program elements and, and really the governance around the program, which really helps to drive the leadership, the commitment, the consistent execution, and then the, the sufficiency of how the company actually documents that program to effectively report to their stakeholders. And, and, and I think the important thing to focus on is no matter how an organization interprets the, the various requirements, draws on frameworks, there's a clear recognition, even from stakeholders and, and policymakers and regulators, that these issues are very challenging. They are very complex. There is no kind of off-the-shelf checklist of if you do these 10 things, you're covered. And it's the spirit of a continuous improvement sort of an exercise and, and really encouraging and incentivizing corporations to be very transparent around the progress they're making, the, the, the steps they're taking, the, the stakeholders they, with whom they're engaging, but also the challenges that they're facing and really how they are assessing those risks and determining strategies to address them. Bottom line, it's about visibility through the supply chain to understand actually what's going on in your supply chain. And yet, as you know, so many supply chains, if not most of them, are multi-tier, they're global, they're complex, and maybe it's not a big deal to get visibility of what your tier one supplier is doing, and maybe not even your tier two. But when you start tracing all the way up, back to a farm, back to a mine, or something like that, that, again, becomes a tremendous challenge. So what advice do you have for companies that need to reach all the way up through multiple tiers to get that visibility where it really matters? You're exactly right. I think that the big learning that, that we took away from the conflict minerals or the early days of the conflict minerals compliance efforts and activity is is really the, the reality setting in of the tremendous undertaking that it can be to begin and, and take those initial steps to really drive that, that effort towards increasing transparency. I think what we found, and I think we're, the, these are where some of the lessons learned can really help inform how companies approach and the, the, the pace with which they take their broader anti-human trafficking efforts is, is really the fact that the efforts taken do help and, and there is the benefit that, that you can start to see in terms of being able to promote that increased transparency in a very moderated fashion. Clearly, this can happen overnight and, and we've seen with three years of conflict minerals reporting, there's still a tremendous challenge for companies to, to continue to push that transparency. But I think where we've seen companies really realize the benefit is is really as they drive better engagement with their suppliers and really try to promote how these these risk issues that are serving as the, the trigger of these activities, that better communicating and engaging with suppliers and helping to, to promote this idea of a shared benefit. When we address this issue of multi-tier visibility, and, and some companies find it impossible to do, as you know, one of the 
parts of the early stages of the SET rule on conflict minerals was allowing companies to, to say that they were conflict undeterminable. They simply didn't know. Do you have a sense of how many companies have taken that option on the conflict mineral side? And if that is the case, doesn't that speak rather dimly of their ability to achieve determination on such a much larger scale? Yes, and most companies, even three years in, continue to find themselves in the conflict undeterminable state, which, to your point, I think, well, more so I think it reflects the complexity of global supply chains and really the the challenge that end issuer companies have in driving that transparency in a time frame as set out by the SEC's rule. With just as a as a side note, with respect to the SEC's rule, with the, the the legal challenge that still is held up in the courts, companies in effect are allowed to continue to state undeterminable in terms of this this transition period while it expired that was intended to serve as the end after which companies would have to make a decision conflict-free or not conflict-free given that, that the SEC's rule itself is held up for constitutionality purposes. Companies still can and still do uh, declare undeterminable. Where we've seen the activities positive development from a company practice is this recognition that an organization can't drive this sort of transparency alone. So it's really helped to encourage, whether it's industry or even cross-industry collaboration driven by a number of industry groups, among others, to really help promote this idea that companies coming together to try to effectuate change as a consortium really have much more influence than companies trying to drive some of these efforts on their own. So I think that is an, an, an opportunity as companies move into this broader addressing anti-human trafficking and labor and, and human rights issues in the supply chain is really taking that that lesson learned from the ability to organize and, and develop these sorts of consortiums to work towards a common purpose and, and really drive efforts around encouraging suppliers and encouraging value chain participants to, to really participate for the benefit of, of the broader group. Maybe it should be a, a question of perspective, too, that companies should not simply look on this as a regulatory burden that they have to meet. I mean, beyond the obvious benefits of respecting human rights around the globe, I guess you would argue that a proper framework for stopping anti-human trafficking within your supply chain is actually a valuable asset to your company in other ways. I mean, talk a little bit about how that actually is an asset from a company or a corporate standpoint. You're exactly right. And I think similar to some of the the early days of of conflict minerals where companies really suggested that there was no way that the compliance would be possible in the spirit and the the letter of the law, I think three years out, we've seen companies, we've seen some of these benefits really emerge in terms of recognizing the the brand and reputational risk considerations that this role really highlighted. And it really just gets down to the fact that gaining greater insights and and information around your supply chain participants only better positions a company to be more adaptive to challenges that will continuously arise. It's not about trying to anticipate what's going to be the next regulation. It's trying to think about how you can use these, these regulatory or policy drivers, which in effect Technically, regulation goes into effect to try to to solve for a market failure, and, and companies can really look at these emerging policy developments 
to really step back and, and, and better understand where they can derive value from what these, these activities really are, are serving to do for the company, because there is a, a tremendous amount of value from just a, a risk, a better, better management of risk on a proactive basis, better positioning in a company to be adaptive and, and responsive to challenges that arise that, that can't be anticipated. So I think there's a, a lot of value that can be realized. And I think we are seeing companies really acknowledge that in, in terms of the experience with conflict minerals. And, and I do think it's something that as companies, again, broaden their approach to anti-human trafficking efforts, can really look to and, and really take that, that open mind around the value that can be derived from these activities. But the challenge gets broader all the time. You begin to understand the need to incorporate rules to for overall sustainability, for human rights, for working conditions, for environmental protection. Do you recommend that companies develop like an entire department within the company that's solely tasked to handle this or for that matter, an individual, a corporate officer, maybe even a C-suite officer to oversee this effort? Is that a good idea? Absolutely. I think the what we've learned from conflict minerals, what we've learned from the broader evolving ESG and sustainability landscape is what's so important to an organization is to really establish the, the appropriate governance that really starts with a champion at the C-suite and in many cases at the board level, engaging the board to really recognize and establish very clearly the issues that are most important, most material to, to driving value and really organize around drawing in the, the appropriate responsible parties across the business, across the business units, across the different departments of an organization to engage the right people, empower those people to really drive policy activities and broader uh, due diligence activities and really position the organization to, to better understand how these risks relate to the business, but also how they can use this, these sorts of activities to really drive value for the business. It is quite overwhelming for companies. As we work with companies, as we talk with companies, as they're constantly trying to evaluate the emerging requirements and how that's going to shape their activities. But what we like to recommend to companies is clearly that constant monitoring of the, the regulatory and policy landscape is critical, but it's also instructive to really you know, step back and, and really look at your business, look at the areas of, of environmental and social issues that, that you impact as a business and that are increasingly impacting you from a global megatrend perspective and really think about how you're organizing, how you're deploying resources, and how you're really driving activities and then measuring that performance and not be afraid to course correct and, and really evaluate and continuously evaluate where you're spending your time, how you're prioritizing your time so you can effectively communicate with your important stakeholders in a credible manner and be prepared as the, the regulatory landscape changes and as the next issue. It happens to be anti-human trafficking at this point. It's going to be issue after issue, but as an organization, has that established program in place management system and clear governance structure that really instills and, and drives the commitment of the organization. Those are the companies that are going to best be, be best served and, and, and able to adapt to the changing landscape. Kristen Sullivan, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand how companies can implement effective measures against human trafficking and other sustainability issues throughout the global supply chain. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Bob. That was my conversation with Kristen Sullivan of Deloitte, talking about how to wipe out the scourge of human trafficking in the supply chain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com. 
where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.